Well, good morning, church. It is good to be able to worship here together in the house of the Lord, to sing praises to his name. Please, if you have a Bible with you, please grab it and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, where we are going to be concluding our series here. Well, not series, but concluding the third chapter in our series on the book of 1 Timothy. And today what we're going to be doing is we are going to be looking at the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and just how unique it is and also the gospel's power to change us from the inside out as we live as the family of God. There's a very well-known work called A Christmas Carol written by Charles Dickens, which goes down in history as an English classic. And it tells the story of a man, a London miser by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, the word Scrooge in the name now has become for us synonymous with the idea of a person who is cold, penny-pinching, and thrifty. That's where it comes from, Charles Dickens' character. And his, perhaps his most famous line is the bah humbug as he, you know, goes against anything that is Christmas-related. Now, what's remarkable about the story, and I think why people enjoy it so much, is how uh, Scrooge, through his encounters with Jacob Marley, his uh, old business partner, as well as the three ghosts of Christmas, lead him to be transformed as an individual. As you read this story, you think nothing can change Scrooge Scrooge, who is as cold as the winter outside, but as he encounters these different ghosts and they show him something, not only about his past, but himself as well, he begins to change. One of the first ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, takes him back to look at his old life. He sees himself as a young boy, and his heart is touched by that as he sees that lone young boy. He cries, though for himself, or another version of himself, his younger self, and realizes maybe he doesn't have everything right. He is then transported later to see his old generous man who uh, he worked for and apprenticed under and is moved by the man's generosity. He is introduced to the girl, the fiance, who broke up with him because she realized that he loved money more than he loved her he is also introduced to his sister who has already passed away, but he's reminded that this sister loved him and cared for him, and he's brought to shame by the way that he treats his young nephew who is his sister's son. And so as the story goes on and he sees more and more things about himself, you realize that the only thing that can break the cold exterior of Scrooge, the only thing that can grab his gaze and pull it from looking at the figures in his bank account is not a rebuke, or a harsh individual coming up him and telling him he already knows these things. The only thing that transforms the individual is a realization that he himself is a recipient or has been a recipient of love that he himself is unwilling to give out. And as he looks at the stark contrast of what has been shown to him and what he actually is, he begins to change. And his transformation, as you look at the end of the book, is so complete that he becomes an individual who generously gives out money, takes care of tiny Tim. He chuckles loudly, and it says he was a man who knew how to keep Christmas well. Now, why the story of Scrooge touches hearts in our culture and our society is because I think deep down inside our society, we know that for people to change, 
The only way for them to truly change and for us to trust that change is for them to change from the inside out. When an individual has an experience of radical love, something that has you know, shaped them and changed the way that they live, you know, that's the only way that on the outside we can affect sort of permanent type of change. See, only a heart that has been deeply loved can pour out love. Only a heart that has been forgiven understands then how to forgive. So what I'd like to do in our text today is my hope is that as we look at this text today, we would see that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only demands that we live differently as the people in the family of God, but the gospel as well is the very fuel that we need, the deep love of Christ that allows us to live differently and not just aspire to do so. See, only until we realize that we ourselves are recipients of divine love will we be able to act and live in a way that exhibits God's love to other people. So church, how do you change? How do you change deeply? How do you be transformed? You must be changed from the inside out. And we are not transformed, I will argue, by willpower, but we are truly transformed by grace. So as we go into our text today, let's just pray and invite the Lord here to speak to our souls and open his word to us. Father, and you are in heaven, And your love towards us is very, very great. Father, there is no king who is like you, O God, who has become one of his own creation, O Lord, to live and to die amongst us, O God, so that we, God, might be saved. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who aren't just moved by temporary guilt, or motivated, O God, to just be better human beings. That motivation will not last. But I pray, Father, that we would be deeply transformed and changed people. Changed not because of rebuke or because of guilt or because of shame, but changed, God, because we are loved, purchased, bought, even while we were your enemies. So, Father, would you work a miracle in our hearts today? If we have grown cold to this truth, oh God, reignite, God, fire in our souls. If we have never heard this from before, God, I pray you would set this light in our hearts, oh God, so we might see. So, Father in heaven, I ask, God, would you speak to us? Your word, oh God, is truth. Sanctify us in this truth. Open your truth to us, and may we hear the truth of our God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, church, let us read together. Please follow along as I read our text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. The Apostle Paul writing here, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You know, it's the very heart of Christian leaders 
to not just write and give commands from afar, but to identify with the people of God and to lead them not just with words, but also by example. You see here that Paul had a lot to write to his young disciple Timothy, but you can also see from here his earnest desire to go and to be with not only Timothy, his beloved child in the faith, but also to be with this Ephesian church that he had spent three years laboring, he says, day and night over with tears to teach them and how to live in a way which honors the Lord Jesus Christ from his very own example. Now, the apostle here loved this church, and this is a hallmark, I think, and a trait of Christian leadership. Christian leadership, unlike the leadership of this world, is definitively founded on love. No CEO will be rebuked simply because he does not care about the hearts of his people. A CEO has a job to do. If he gets the task done, that is the most important thing. But a Christian is different, see? Unlike a company where an employee that does not perform well is simply just fired, you can't in the family of God, or in your own family for that matter, look at your son or your daughter and say, you are an underperforming family member. You're fired. Out. See, anyone who runs a house that way knows nothing about what it means to actually be a parent. You try to run the church of God like a business, and you will fail at it. The church is not an institution or a corporation. It is a family. And so in the church, it is why you experience sometimes the greatest possible pain that you can experience as you watch people that you cannot coerce or fire walking down a path of their own destruction, and all you can do is go to the Lord and plead with Him for mercy and grace. If you've been a parent pleading over wayward children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know the pain of what it is. If only your child would make better decisions. You know, because the apostle loved the church, he wanted them so badly to conduct themselves like a church that honored the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wrote to them about these things in his letters that he wanted the church to do in order that they would honor Christ. You know, if you ever wonder what a new church plant should look like, you can read all sorts of books on the shelves of major Christian bookstores and you will be confused. Everything from how to have great bouncy castles, how to have the best possible worship program, even how to have a guide to lead people into spontaneous baptisms and to maximize your throughput on any given. There's so much information on, out there of what it takes to build a good church. But honestly, if you are interested in being a part of a new church or ever God calls you to a place where you're participating in a grassroots movement, actually, you need not look any further than the book of 1 Timothy as your grounding and your basis point for where to start. See, a children's ministry, a coffee bar, a giant HD projector screen, I mean, these are generally maybe useful things to have, but they're not the essence of a church. They're not integral. In the first three chapters, Paul lays out in Timothy what is actually integral to the church. And you read through this, there's at least six things that we have gone over in our past sermons. The first thing we learned from it, chapter 1, verse 3, was that the church cannot tolerate false doctrine. The second thing that should characterize a church is chapter 1, verse 4. A church must be devoted to love and obedience to the truth. That must mark a church. 
The third thing that we learned was that in 118, that a church must be engaged in spiritual warfare. Church is not a country club, but it is an organization of family that participates in war in its regular daily living. War not to kill people, but to bring people to life, pulling them out of the control of the prince of darkness and giving them truth for life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fourth thing that we learned from Timothy as Paul wrote about these things in chapter 2 is that the church is to pray for the salvation of all people. Not just the people you like, but even the boss who treats you poorly is to be prayed for. For the Roman emperor and the governors who are hostile to Christianity, Paul says, pray for them. The fifth thing that we learn from the, these things that Paul writes about is that the church must train men and women to fulfill their God-given roles as men and women uniquely. And then the sixth thing, which we have been looking at just in the last little while, is that the church must appoint for itself qualified leaders to serve God's people and to shepherd them in the name of Christ. See, when you're looking for a church... Don't ask, do they have good coffee? What you need to ask is, do they have godly character? You have these six things here. You have the makings of a good church here. It's not about programs. It's about the people. Are they a Christ-centered, transformed people? That's what we need to look for. You know, there's two things we actually learn in this text about the church being the household of God. I mean, the first one, I think, which is quite obvious to us, and we've said it numerous times, and that is that the church is a family. We're God's family. And given that God describes us here as a household of God, a family, it's important that the church act and function like a family should. You know, church, have you ever stopped to consider what it means when we say that the church is a family. See, a family is not a loose collection of individuals who happen to share a common last name. It is a group of people who laugh together, cry together, feed one another, serve one another, bear each other's burdens, put up with one another. It's a group of people who are committed to each other, though you make each other absolutely furious at times. And you know they're always there for you. They know who you are to them. And you know who you are to them. And if you're missing, your family knows it. And just as a family has a leader, the church of Jesus Christ is not leaderless, but has qualified individuals who serve in a fatherly way to give leadership, shepherding, counsel, love, and care for the flock that is ultimately under the authority of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. So church is, is, is church for you. How do you use the word? Is it a place where you go? Or is church for you the people who are your family? Would people miss you here if you were gone? Can you replace the word church with family as you talk? And will your speech still make sense? So... You try saying this. You say, I go to church on Sundays. My church has a lot of programs. Try replacing that with the word family. I go to family on Sundays. My family has a lot of programs. Sounds really weird. But if the church for you is people, then you will say things like, I love my church. 
Every time my church gets together, we have such a wonderful time eating together, sharing in one another's lives, serving each other, and worshiping God and making memories. What I love most about my church is that they model Jesus' life to me and his love. You take that and you replace the word church there with family, and it works. I love my church. I mean, I love my family. Every time my family gets together, we have a wonderful time sharing memories, serving one another being in each other's lives, crying together. What I love about my church or my family is that they model Jesus Christ's love to me. You see the difference? Huge difference in the way that we talk about the church. It's more than the building. See, if you just come here on Sundays and then you disappear, this place really for you is a building and an organization that you go to perhaps just once a week. It's not a family. See, being a family is more than just sharing a last name or sharing common DNA. Now, I remember reading the story about a bride who chose to have her stepfather walk her down the aisle and also to do her father and daughter's dance instead of her birth father who was sitting right there. Now, that's quite a statement to make, but I think we understand that at some gut level because as dysfunctional as families maybe are in this world and things are not ideal, we all understand that being a father is more than just providing the DNA to make another human being. We know that a father is an individual who loves and that love is expressed through action over time. And so it is, I think, with the church of Jesus Christ. How do you know that the church of Jesus Christ is your true family? The true family are those that we love or love us back, and that love is expressed in action over time. You see, that girl's birth father could say, well, I love my daughter. I gave, you know, I'm her father. And she could look at that individual and say, there's more to being a father, and then just saying that you love and never being involved in my life. There is more to being a member here of this church, being a part of Westland Baptist than simply saying, that's my church, I go here on Sundays. Is this place your family? Do you love the people who are here? The easy to love and the hard to love as well. You know, church, Jesus Christ died to make us a family, so let us learn to love one another since we are family. You know, the second thing that we learn here about the church being the household of God is not just that it's family, but that God himself lives with his family. You, you read this throughout the Bible. You look at, for example, at Ephesians chapter 2, which explains that the church is actually the holy temple of the Lord and that it is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, if the church is the temple of God, what it means is that the glory of God and His very presence lives in His temple and lives amongst us as the gathered people of God. You know, the Bible tells us actually clearly that God doesn't live in temples made by human hands as if any human structure could fully contain Him. Can't. You know, sometimes I wonder what would happen, you know, as we, you think about this, if truly God lives amongst his people, where his people are, there God is. I really wonder sometimes what would happen if I went outside our church and I stuck a sign out that says, God lives here on Sundays when his people are gathered and in their homes during the rest of the week. Don't think that the church is just a building. 
I think it would maybe catch some attention. You know, most people think of the church or the physical building just as a sacred space. And they say, God must live here. Uh uh uh. The God of the Bible, the God of the New Testament, says, I live amongst my people. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, you realize when you read about the people of Israel, you see actually what makes them unique. And in the writings of Moses, you discover that the uniqueness of the people of Israel is not that they are great people. It's not that they're smart. It's not that they have a common ancestor who had 12 sons. It's not of that. It's not even that they were well organized. What makes the people of Israel absolutely unique, it says, is the presence of God with them. And they carry a tabernacle and later a temple that they worship God in regularly. And it says that God God's presence is represented by this portable tabernacle that they bring with them everywhere. Now, after the people of Israel sin against God by making these golden calves while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, we read about God's judgment against them, which is really severe. Exodus 33 says this, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. See, the most terrible thing that can happen to you in this life is that you inherit a ton of money, health and wealth, but you lose the presence of God. See, you want to know if you are a true Christian and a believer in God. See, just ask yourself this. If God gave you money and great health but left you alone, would you be happy? Is that what you pray for every single day? See, for the true believer, losing the presence of God and not God's gift is actually what is most devastating in life. Now, in Israel, God's presence was primarily centered around the physical temple. But when you get to the New Testament, you realize that God's presence is expanded to the living stones of the people who constitute his church. You read Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, that says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I know this verse actually refers to church discipline. That is, when the church gathers to discipline an individual who is unrepentant over their sin, the text teaches us that when a person is put outside of the fellowship of the church, God himself approves of and is in that decision as well. God says, I'm among you when you do that. But if God is with us when we are waging spiritual war, making sure that the church is pure, how much more so is God with us when we are involved in the praise of his name? You know, I think this is why it's so important for us to understand why we as Christians actually gather together and should belong to a local church. Because if this is true, it's in the presence of other Christians that God actually chooses to make his presence especially and uniquely known and experienced. And you see this actually in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 22 verse 3 says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of your people. Now, do you realize how significant of a statement that is? What does that tell us about God? You know, last week on Canada Day, 
I was at a nearby church celebrating, and I was eating a hot dog, and I took a chair, and I put it down on a place that I could eat, and to my surprise, the whole chair actually toppled over, and I almost fell out, and I caught myself at the last moment. When I looked down, I realized that I had placed my chair half on concrete and half on a bit of dirt, but what I didn't realize was that the dirt there was extremely loose, so loose and actually so deep that when I actually sat on the chair, it couldn't take my weight, and the whole chair sank down an entire foot, almost throwing me off of it. Now, I thought to myself, funnily enough, if I was a king, what kind of a sight would I have made? A very undignified king, first of all, probably a very poor king to sit on a plastic chair, but what kind of king has a throne that topples over and is placed on dirt? It's not a king worthy of worship. Now, instead, if I was a king that was given a gold throne to sit on and my platform was not dirt, but had diamonds instead everywhere, you would look at that and you would say, that's probably some king. He commands an incredible amount of wealth. If that's what he has on his chair, what else does he have in his house? That must be a great individual. So what we ride on, what we sit on says something about who you are and what kind of wealth you have available to you. Same thing when it comes to the throne of God. When the Bible tells us that the highest heavens cannot contain God and that God rides on the praises of his people, he sits, his throne is on the praises of people, you realize that God is so magnificent, so impressive, so worthy of our worship, so out of this world that he doesn't even sit on physical objects made out of matter. God is a God who says, I can make my throne on the adoration of my subjects. You beat that. What kind of king can do that? Only God can. See, do you realize what's happening when the church gathers together? When we sing praises to God, when we sit under the preaching of His Word, and our hearts resound with praise to God because of the truth that we are hearing, and we come to a realization of who God is, and our hearts worship Him, what is happening in our gathered worship is that adoring hearts create a platform and a throne for the great King to come and to sit on and to be pleased by our worship. So, we come here and we praise God in worship. And we say, God, come and sit. Be with us now, O Lord. Sit on the praises of your people. When we praise God in the church, God is present. You see why worshiping with your church family is important? Don't look for church programs primarily. Come to the church and say, is God present here? Because if he's not present here, I don't want to be here. I want the presence of God. You know, if God is present when His people gather praise, this is actually immensely encouraging to us as believers. It means there's nothing that can stop God in this world from being with you. You know, this week I read the story in Open Doors of a man in Iran, a persecuted country, who was imprisoned for his faith. And although Moshtaba, this Iranian house church leader, was initially fearful and upset about being thrown in prison, he began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in prison. He so earnestly desired to have a Bible, but of course, no Christians are allowed to have Bibles in prisons. But his prayers to God were heard and answered, and God moved a Muslim imam to have pity on him and helped him smuggle in Christian scriptures so he could have them. He began circulating the, Christ the scriptures in the prison and leading people to Jesus Christ right there. Mushtaba wrote that he did not pray that God would release him from prison. 
prison. Because as he saw people getting saved, he realized that God could use him anywhere and that God was not limited by prison walls. What he says he prays for Christians is not for release from prison, is that they would have inner joy and peace from God himself, the very presence of God wherever they are. See, that's what's important. If you know that God sits enthroned on the praises of his people, then no guard, no prison, no locked door, no loss of your job, no health circumstances, no hospital bed can ever keep God away from you. Praise God with his people and he'll be there. You know, that's what happened to Paul and Silas when they were jailed in Acts chapter 16. It says that at midnight they were there in the prison, and instead of moaning over their wounds, their hearts were filled with joy, and they were singing praises to God at midnight. And all the prisoners were listening to them, and God in His presence brings an earthquake, shakes the place, all the doors open, the jailer looks at it, he's scared, thinks that all the prisoners have escaped, is about to kill himself. Paul says, we're all here. The jailer for the first time, a hardened Roman soldier, heard the singing of the gospel, maybe didn't think much of it, but as he came face to face with the reality that God is real and present and did something miraculous, took the theology that he heard sung from Paul, probably hearing that there was the wrath of God and that Paul had been saved from it, realized he himself needed salvation, grabs them, calls for lights, and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And that night, the jailer goes home, washes Paul and Silas's wounds, and he and his family are led to the Lord Jesus Christ and saved. So, you know, when the church lives and worships like the church and the very presence of God is there, people begin to see God for who He is. So it's so important, church, that we be the church. You know, there's one more thing that's important here in verse 15, and that is it says here that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. In other words, the church is what actually holds up the gospel on a solid platform for all the world to see. Now, I know that when I read about universities, many universities have in their mottos some form of like seeking the truth or truth conquers all or truth for life, whatever it is. Universities love talking about the truth. You know what makes the Christian church so unique compared to a university? See, a university is a place of higher education and certainly a church is a place where you are educated of course, in different things, spiritual things. Well, what makes a church different from a university is that the church does not claim to just be looking for the truth. The church makes the incredibly bold claim that we have the truth. And if you want to know the truth, let us introduce you to the truth. And guess what? The truth is not just an abstract concept. It's a person. You know, as one famous preacher said, God has not given us and we're talking about proofs of Christianity, necessarily an airtight, watertight argument, but he has given us an airtight and watertight person. Jesus Christ is the best argument that we have for Christianity, right? Display Jesus to someone, and you introduce to them the living God. He is the best argument or apologetic for Christianity. There are many people in our world who will never deal with the intellectual arguments of the ivory tower in our universities, but show them the person of Jesus Christ, and they will say, I don't know how to say it, but I have seen something different, and I believe he is the Son of God. 
The farmer who has no education can know about God's truth because they can be introduced to the truth, not through a university, but through a person. You know, when the church lives as the way that the church is supposed to live, this truth about Jesus Christ is held up as valuable and precious for all the world to see. But when the church fails to be the church, the results are catastrophic, and we literally rob people. We commit criminal activity against other people in this world by robbing them of the ability to see God. You know, when creation began, God revealed himself, you know, to people, like to Adam personally. And as time went on and the world grew, he revealed himself to the nation of Israel so that as people saw how God treated Israel, they would know how God would treat them as well. And now here on this side of the cross, we realize that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at the person of Jesus Christ and you will be introduced to God. You know, one commentator said this about how important it is the task that a local church has. He writes, each local church has in its power to support and strengthen the truth by its witness to the faith and by the lives of its members. So when people look at us as a church and they see the poor amongst us saying, it's okay, God is my inheritance. And a dying Christian amongst us saying, it's okay, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. They will look at you and say, that's crazy. What do you believe? And as they look at these lives which are so different, one poor, one dying, another rich, and they look up these pillars to the top. What are you holding up? What, what is it that you believe? And they're introduced to the work and person of Jesus Christ. And everyone, nobody looks at a pillar that's broken down and lying on the ground, but everyone is very interested in a pillar that can withstand the force of a hurricane. Say, what is that built on? I want to know what that is. And that's why God gives trials in this life. And the hurricanes of life sweep through your circumstances and you stand firm in Jesus Christ and you continue to uphold the truth of the gospel. You make God look good. You know how priceless the gospel of Jesus Christ is? Look at verse 16. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You know, the Christian faith or the mystery of godliness is undeniably great. And although the origins of verse 16 are debated, I think it's most likely that this is an early Christian hymn that the Apostle Paul didn't create, but that he heard and was quoting it to the timid, uh, people in Ephesus who would have recognized this hymn that gives us six great truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what makes the gospel so very great. I want to go through them with you. Number one is that God became a man. Now, other religions in this world talk about God's becoming men, but only Christianity talks about a God who became a human being and permanently. Only in Christianity does God so identify with his people that he comes as a man to suffer and die for them. You read Greek myths and other things, when the gods come down in human form, it's usually to test people and then to rip off their humanity and display their godliness and all their power and to condemn them for something. Christianity is not like that. God comes down so that he would die 
at the hands of his creation instead, out of his love for them. He doesn't need to, but he wants to, identifies with them and dies on the cross for them. See, most religions have no problem believing in God. This is where they stumble. The idea that God could become a man, and furthermore, that God would need to become a man to save us from our sins. A goat can't die for us, but we needed a perfect, spotless lamb, a human lamb. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. We praise God that he sent us a man, but not just any man, the God-man himself. You know, the second thing that we learn from this vindicated by the Spirit is also important. Now, I think this almost certainly means that though Jesus died a dishonorable criminal's death on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead vindicated him as not a criminal, but as an innocent human being. See, we moderns don't have a natural sense of revulsion that the ancients would have felt as they heard about Jesus Christ dying on the cross and being crucified. See, in their world, dying on the cross meant a, you were probably a horrible, disgusting, and despicable individual who absolutely deserved that kind of punishment. It was reserved for the worst people, and even for Romans. Roman citizens could not be crucified. So ignoble was it as a death. Now, to try to capture that feeling, see, if I told you in our culture, someone, you heard someone saying, my grandfather died in a concentration camp. He starved to death. You would say to that, I'm so sorry. That's absolutely terrible what happened. Uh, uh, such a strong person. You know, we look at that and we would say, that's a crime. But if that same person said to you, my grandfather died in a Nazi concentration camp, you say, how did he die? He fell off the guard tower. You would look at that, and you would say, I'm not sure what to say to you right now. I'm not sure why you're telling me this. Why? Because in our culture, in our world, without even me having to explain anything, you know right away that an individual who starves to death in a concentration camp is a victim of one of the most horrific circumstances known to man, the Nazi genocide of the Jews. And the people who served on those guard towers should have known better what they were doing to treat other human beings like that. If they died by falling off a guard tower, most people want to say, good, he probably deserved that and worse. When you talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, it's like that. The same despicable feeling that you have towards an individual falling off a Nazi guard tower is the same way that individuals during that time would have looked at Jesus. <laughs> crucified Messiah dying on a Roman cross must have been a criminal, evil person, probably deserved that. The Apostle Paul, he knew his Bible. He read Deuteronomy 21, 23, which says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he looked at Jesus and said, crucified Messiah, that's an oxymoron. That's like jumbo shrimp. It's like one person who said, you know, I'm a deeply superficial person. That makes absolutely no sense. You can't have a crucified Messiah. And yet, when Jesus Christ rises from the dead, Paul's theology changes as he meets him there on the Damascus Road. I can imagine that in Paul's head, 
the guy who knew the Bible really well, he would have said, okay, I've been killing all these Christians because I know my Bible. I have the zeal of Phineas. They dare to make Jesus a God and to worship him. I know the scriptures. I need to kill these people who are blaspheming against God. Wait a minute. I met him on the road to Damascus. If God raised him from the dead, it means that God wasn't angry with him. But I read that cursed is everyone who died on a tree. How do I put the two together? Wait a minute. If God isn't angry with him because he raised him from the dead and gave him new life and he is cursed, what could that curse possibly be for? There's only one logical explanation. He was not cursed then for his own sins. He must have been cursed for the sins of others. And then in his head, he would have gone through the Bible and thought to himself, where do I see a Messiah who is cursed? Ah, Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins. He himself, he was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. There's the suffering Messiah. He would have read going back through time, Genesis, and realize God's promise. How can, how can this little nation of Israel be a blessing to the world? I know how it's going to be a blessing to the world. The offspring, Jesus Christ, who will bring to the world salvation from their sins so that anyone who believes in him throughout the world could come into the very presence of God. I understand Genesis. Now, I can imagine how many epiphanies the Apostle Paul would have had as he realized that Jesus Christ was vindicated by the Spirit of God as he was raised from the dead. See, Jesus Christ's resurrection is so important because it shows us he was not a criminal, though he died a criminal's death. We are the criminal. He died and was cursed because to remove the curse from us. You know, the third thing that we learned here in our text is that angels, seen by angels. Now, I'm fully aware that in our modern world, people, if you say that you believe in angels in this world, people will say, do you also believe in the tooth fairy? You know, I mean, if you're at these childish things, why not go all the way and believe in leprechauns? See, in our culture, angels are fictional creatures that sit on clouds and play harps all day. There's nothing exceptional about them. They're artwork. But the Bible paints a very different picture of angels. You read in the book of 2 Kings of an angel that destroys 185,000 battle-hardened Assyrian soldiers. You read in Job 38 that the angels were there and worshiping God as God sank the foundations of the world into place. You read in Hebrews 1 verse 7 that God calls his angels winds and he calls his ministers, these angels, flames of fire as well. So you want to think about how tough and how dangerous these creatures are. Can you outrun an angel? Well, can you outrun the wind? No, you can't. Can you wrestle an angel? Let me ask you a question. Can you wrestle with fire and put fire in a chokehold? If you can't do that, you cannot fight an angel. See, angels are magnificent, superb beings. So when Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12 that angels long to look into our salvation, what Peter is trying to tell us is, do you understand just how valuable your salvation is? These creatures which are so magnificent long to look into what you have. Do you realize what it means that an angel envies what you, child, have? It would be like Jeff Bezos, who is the richest man in the world and founder of Amazon, coming to you right now and saying, I have a lot of money, but can I look in your safety deposit box? Because I think you have something I can't have. You know, so you look at it and you're like, wow. You know, 
women truly were actually not the first eyewitnesses at the resurrection. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were angels. And that's why they were able to tell the women, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here, he's risen. He's, they saw him. See, you realize that when we talk about Christianity, and they say there are no eyewitnesses, they're all dead. That's actually wrong. There are eyewitnesses. The angels are still alive, and they have seen him. And if a creature so great worships God and has seen him, how much more so you, little human being? Number four, right? Proclaimed among the nations. You know, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is not some great family secret that we keep, not like in Kentucky where everyone guards their Kentucky fried chicken recipe. And people in the South, they love their fried chicken, and they will go to death to preserve that thing. The Christian church is not like that. We don't guard our secret recipe or our medicine for ourselves only. We bring it out to the world and say, I share it with all of you. It was given to me, so I give it to you as well. You realize how significant it is that it says proclaimed among the nations and not proclaimed amongst the Jews? That would be devastating for us if the gospel was only for the Jews or for a particular group of people or good people or rich people or people who haven't screwed up too much in life. Can you imagine being sick and dying and learning that a foreign hospital has a new drug to treat you and you fly over to that country and you say, please treat me, I'm dying. And they say, I'm sorry, we don't serve Canadians and foreigners here. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ would be like. We take it for granted when it says the gospel is proclaimed among the nations and not just amongst a particular ethnic people. Christianity is really the only religion in the world, you know what I mean, that is not bound by cultural ties, but goes out into all the world. Jesus is worshipped in every tribe, tongue, and nation according to people's customs. Number five here, Jesus isn't just a potential savior, but he is an actual savior. It says he is believed on in the world. You know what hope this is for us, brothers and sisters? This is like past kind of tense. It's like final. He's believed on in the world, not might be believed on. It means that when you and I go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people from different tribes, with our neighbors, all sorts of people, we know that at the very end of the day, there will be people who believe in him. We never have to worry that people do not respond to the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Christ did not just die to hopefully effect salvation and then one day in the future be sitting there in heaven saying, oh, well, my goodness, nobody actually came to know me. How sad. He came to secure an actual people who would believe in him and to fill his heaven with worshipers and he will get exactly what he intends to get. So let's go out and preach the gospel because people will be saved. You know, the sixth thing that we learn here about this, taken up in glory, is also really significant because it means Jesus is alive. He's interceding at God's right hand right now in heaven for us, and he will stay there until all the redeemed are saved, and then he will come again to judge the living and the dead. You know, you read Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, which says this, And when he had said these things, Jesus talking, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. 
See, the fact that Jesus actually came back to life is not unique. Jesus was not the first person to be resurrected from the dead. Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. Elisha also raised the Shunammite woman's son. Jesus is not the first resurrected person from the dead. What's unique about Jesus is that he was not only resurrected, but he was resurrected never to die again and was taken up into the presence of God. That's what makes him unique. And one day, the implication here, what's unfinished, is that he will return. Church, we don't need to cry that Jesus is not here with us now, right? Because he tells us in John chapter 14, verse 3, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and one day I will come again and take you to be with me where I am, my home. And so this is a huge promise. When it says Jesus Christ is taken up in glory, it means that he is the uniquely resurrected one who lives right now, and one day he is coming again. That's the last line of the song. Can you see why that's worth singing about, Christians? Our unspoken hope that Jesus is coming back one day, not as our enemy and our judge, but as our friend to take us to be with him, to free us from this world. That's why we can sing songs like this. In church, Friends, the church is the only place in the world that will hold up this truth about Jesus Christ and his great love for you on the cross. And if that truth has changed you and you understand that deeply inside your own soul, you will live differently. You can't not forgive people if you truly get the forgiveness Jesus Christ gave you. You can't look at enemies and say, I can't love that individual. Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know what you have done to God? And do you know what he paid in his love for you so that you could be with him? You want to change deeply. The only way to change deeply, to be a more truly, divinely loving, patient, and kind person who can give of yourself to the point where you actually die, is to go to the one who gave of himself to the point of death for you. And when you are moved by that, changed by that, transformed by that, and you grasp that deep in your soul, you will live differently. You will love differently. And you will talk to people and lead them to Jesus. You know, when you, if you're not a believer here, you know, you are a sinner who is in need of the grace of God and forgiveness from Him. Would you just turn your life over to Him? Stop doing things your own way and learn to be transformed by the love of God so that you might go out into this world and be a force for ultimate spiritual good. See, if you really get the gospel and you hear things like, you ought to live this way, you will say, I can live this way. I don't live this way because I feel guilty, because someone told me to or somebody is checking up on me. I live this way because it is my joy to live this way, because another person lived this way for me. And the world, church, as we live this way, may the world be amazed at the rock-solid truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that none of the storms or earthquakes in this life can move. Are you changed by the gospel? Is the church of Jesus Christ your precious family? Church, may God make us into people who treasure, savor, and value the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for loving us, for taking care of us and providing for us and giving us the gospel. Lord, I just ask, Father, that in all that we say and that we do, help us to be a transformed people, a people who are transformed by the gospel, who live the gospel, 
and in all that we do, O God, proclaim the gospel not just with our lips, but with the way that we live. God, help us to love Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.